Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Cara Friedrich believes that chance favours the prepared mind. But from her life trajectory, it's also clear that fortune favours those who are prepared to take chances. Cara is the founder and managing partner of Tiger Financial Group, the investment firm dedicated to empowering Australian growth companies into global markets. After growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, attending Princeton, and then spending more than 15 years as an investor and advisor for financial services technology companies in New York and San Francisco, she found the love of her life, moved to Sydney, and became, as she calls it, an accidental Australian. Cara has thrived in her adopted home, with her firm Tiger instrumental in the $1.2 billion US dollar deal to list Tritium on the NASDAQ, advising HR tech leader Culture Amp on the capital raise which propelled them to unicorn status and many other notable deals. Cara's committed to the future of education and diversity in technology. She volunteers her time as the director of SB Australia and is also a member of Princeton University's Alumni Schools Committee, in addition to being an active mentor in the tech ecosystem. Cara's well-publicised departure from Westpac's corporate venture arm, reInventure, and subsequent litigation highlights her commitment to stand up for what she believes in and using her actions, as much as her words, to be a role model for others. Cara, it's so good to see you. Hi, how are you, Catherine? Thank you. Yeah, I'm excellent. I've heard you describe yourself as an accidental Australian. How did you end up being not only an Australian, but sort of in lots of ways, really at the heart of the Australian venture um, community? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I was an accidental Australian because I came here for primarily for personal reasons, and it wasn't really part of my life plan. But like most of us who you have a few years of experience on us, we find out that life has its own plans. And so, yes, I happened to meet an Australian years ago working when I was working in on Wall Street, somebody who was not involved with Wall Street at all. And that was what inspired me to take what was in a 180 degree personal decision. Um, and at that time that I moved, I really tried to harness my experience and background to identify where I could be most helpful in an Australian context. You grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. When you were growing up, did you have a sense that you were sort of at the epicenter of big tech globally? No, I think we're all in our own bubbles. And it's important to be able to recognize that. And I, I certainly can say that of my peer group, I probably have put myself in the most different uh, bubbles of anyone I know ge- geographically and, and otherwise. But no, when I grew up, I grew up in a town uh, next to Menlo Park, not far from the Facebook's current headquarters. And 
I found it to be sleepy and boring and very suburbia, in fact. I always gravitated towards large cities. And so I knew early on that I probably would want to go to more of an urban center. So it was not a surprise later on that I went to New York. At the same time, only with the benefit of time would I appreciate how rich an experience I had growing up, um, including when I chose to intern with Sun Microsystems in the Bay Area and when I worked on Sand Hill Road, post-university. So, uh, but growing up uh, in grade school and high school, no, I, I did not appreciate the global tech ecosystem that it was. You moved to the other side of the US, so from the West Coast to the East Coast to go to Princeton. And then, as you say, you, you were an investment banker on Wall Street. How relevant are those skills, having you know honed financial skills in an investment banking context, how relevant are they for the work that you do now in venture investing? Yeah, they're still relevant because I think there's kind of three tenets. One is hard work, just very long hours and iteration. There's we all earn our straps in, in various ways and, and there's different channels to learn hard work, but certainly banking is is one of those channels. So that taught me the value of hard work and not giving up. The second would be it's really under, important to understand fundamentals and the fundamental drivers both macro and micro. So while you're investing in a company, even in early stage, um, some of those core principles don't change. But the third point, macro is important because you should never lose perspective of where you are in a cycle. And that even if you're in early stage venture, there is still a business cycle and a financial cycle in which you exist. And so to keep that context is critical uh, to being a good investor at any stage, but even in, in early stage as well. And so how did you make that transition from going to a prestige university and going into investment banking on Wall Street? Seems like a you know, reasonably well-trodden path, but then moving into venture is a little bit, as you say, more of a leap, particularly if you're doing it outside your home market. How did you navigate that pathway into venture? Yes. Well, wherever I've been, whatever context, whether it was growing up in Silicon Valley or working on Sand Hill Road or going to Wall Street or moving to Australia, I've always tried to check myself in terms of the intersection of my skills, interests, experience, and what's relevant to the local market. So I've had to focus on different aspects of my experience and skill set over that period of time to be relevant. When I came out of university, I actually started on the sell side. I think the consistent theme throughout my career has always been financial services and tech with a focus on tech. And then I've just pivoted that according to stage and size, depending on the market that I was in. So when I started on the sell side, I, I started with two very prominent equity research analysts at Goldman Sachs in software and hardware. And that's where I cut my teeth in terms of public market valuations and how um, technology and growth is valued and thought about in cycles in the public market. And that was an incredible experience. And like many people in the financial markets, when you start on the sell side, there's usually a longing at some point to go to the buy side because that's where the economics tend to be. If you, if you think you're half decent, well, you should have a share of the economics. And so I did eventually go to the buy side, again, with Goldman and private equity but in New York at that time, and now, of course, as well, the deal sizes are quite large. 
because that is the nature of the market being a financial global center. And so probably that's where most of my modeling and in-depth skills came from was through that experience, but also my relationships. So I still have very strong relationships both in Silicon Valley and the New York area based on the time that I spent uh, working on, you know, pulling all-nighters with my colleagues who are now, you know, running different firms themselves. It was actually at my time when I transferred to the to the buy side that I was approached by various venture capital firms, uh, General Catalyst actually being one of them. I didn't have a affinity to move to Boston at the time, but you know who knows what that sliding door moment could have translated into. But certainly had a great regard for the team there and felt that they had a, a good understanding also of the macro as overlay onto venture. And certainly, General Catalyst has gone on to be one of the most successful venture and growth firms, period. So when I moved to Australia, what I needed to reflect on is that this is a smaller market. I wasn't moving for economic reasons to go to a bigger uh, business opportunity per se, but I could see the emergence of, of the technology ecosystem here. And I became very optimistic and supportive of that. And it's turned out to be something that has grown tremendously, and I feel very privileged to be a very small part of that. And I see a great future as well. But I, I felt as though I was coming to a market that was undervalued and really starting to develop, and that seems to be what has happened over the last several years. So you took a, a role in corporate venture with Westpac's corporate venture arm, reinventure. What was that experience like? Yes. So um, I didn't, because I'm not from Australia and I didn't go to school here, it has been a, a learning process for me to understand who's who in the zoo here. I was contacted by reinventure and by Westpac and recruited to become part of that team as they were preparing for their second uh, CVC fund. It's pretty well known in the Valley and, and probably in Australia too, that corporate venture capital is an important part of the ecosystem and has been a, a growing part of the ecosystem, but has certain pluses and minuses to it. Because when you look at investments, not just in terms of their potential return, but also with a strategic overlay, it can provide greater upside for the strategic, but it can also mean certain complications for the company and for the investment team. So I was very pleased to see that large organizations in Australia were, and many times for, for the first time, looking at venture as a viable pathway for investment. I thought that was important and something that, frankly, needed to improve. But the strategic overlay has always been a concern for, mine, for, for me and was something to consider being part of a Westpac's venture capital arm. You've gone on to do your own thing. So tell us a bit about the firm that you lead now. Yeah, so uh, my firm is Tiger Financial Group. I've owned and run the firm before I joined Reinventure and actually continued it through my time at Reinventure because I am a an entrepreneur by blood, I guess, <laughs> um, and by choice. And so we have done a, a lot of things over the past, let's call it five years in Australia, primarily focusing on private technology companies. We have a small team based in Sydney, and we have been involved with some of the most exciting transactions and companies in the market. 
So one example is a company called Tritium, which is now listed uh, on the NASDAQ in ticker DCFC, which is something that's been a particularly exciting journey for which I've, I've been intimately involved. And a big transaction. I mean, it's not a sort of small technology company. Tell us a little bit of the, the sort of scope of that transaction. Sure. I think the story of Tritium probably hits on a, a few of, of the other points that would be fun for us to discuss. But it's, it's really a story of that first point I mentioned is when I came to Australia initially, I, I had the, the feeling some of it was gut and some of it was, was analytical that there was sort of an, an underappreciation for the potential of innovation and technology growth in Australia. And, you know, Tritium is certainly a story that, that shows that th- that was the case, that we have these three very smart founders sitting in uh, that spun off of the University of Queensland who had an idea really 20 years ago, but frankly, it was in the last decade that that idea came to fruition. The three founders were globally relevant in terms of intellect and technology development. They were just looking for a market and investors who would believe in them and their ability to do that, which I think at the time seemed hard for many investors to believe for a couple of reasons. One, precedent. And it's, and it's an electric vehicle. Just explain a little bit about what the company does. Yeah, that's a great point. I've got, I'm in the weeds, so I probably just assume. So Tritium is the world leading manufacturer and developer of electric vehicle fast chargers. The ticker is DCFC because Tritium uses direct current or DC exclusively. And, and FC stands for fast charging. So... Whereas many of the world's charging today is actually AC, but Tritium had some core principles very early on that has kept it in good stead and kept it really ahead of global competition. And one of those has been DC first. So thinking about the sort of investments you like to make, is there sort of a central thesis that you invest around or certain companies that ideally you like to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think staying on Tritium for a second, I think, you know, number one, world leading technology and entrepreneurs. So the team and some differentiated technology. Tritium certainly uh, is proof of that. The second is a desire and vision to go global early on. Australia is not globally relevant in a lot of industries, but it is very deeply relevant globally in a few industries. And solar is one of them. And tritium turns out to be an adjacency to the solar industry. So what at face value may seem as not necessarily logical becomes quite logical when you look in deeper layers, in addition to the, how competent the, the founding team is. So that global relevance is, is critical because it's hard to grow beyond, frankly, a small business without the opportunity to reach a global audience outside of Australia. The third principle that is something sometimes you you only really realize in time. So this one's a little harder, especially not being from here originally, is, is values. So there's core principles in building a business. You're going to come across a lot of hard times, a lot of unexpected events, and you're going to hopefully be lucky <laughs> as well. And uh, But chance favors the prepared mind, so you need to be able to identify when there's a lucky opportunity, so to speak, as well, and have the right people around you who are not going to take advantage of the bad times 
and are going to make sure they're supporting you um, to identify you know, both parts of the cycle. So I think those three points are universal in any investment that we look at and any advisory assignment that we take on. And um, they've served us well so far. And so if you were going to articulate your personal values or the values that infuse your firm, what are the sort of values that are most important to you? Yeah, that's a a simple question, but it's quite deep. I think from an investment perspective, you know, the three principles we we talked about before are part of our values, but this is a journey, particularly if you're talking about early stage private investing, it's a journey, it's a 10 year journey. So anybody who sits there and says, oh, three years or five years, it's it's just extraordinarily unlikely. And so what that means is you have to take a long-term view. And that long-term view is probably fundamentally the most important part of our value system is we aren't making decisions in the beginning or the first year or two that are short-term in nature, which means we don't look at deals or people in in a zero-sum way that essentially we're on this journey together and it's going to be a fair and and reasonable relationship. No one's there to take advantage of the other, but for for both to benefit from the whole. And how hands-on do you get as an investor? Do do you like to be on the board? Do you like to have lots of interaction with the founder or does it just depend on, on the particular company and the founding team? It depends. We sort of have... Two ways we look at investments, either cornerstone positions or minority stakes. So in a position where we would invest approximately 20% of the enterprise value of the business, well, you want to be pretty involved because it's such an important part of preserving and helping to grow the value of that position. Having said that, uh, and, and then in the 1% and the 5% positions, which are other targets, those don't have to be as actively managed. But at the same time, when we come into a position usually or we come, we partner with a founder, typically it's because we want to help. We want to be more than money. There's lots of places you can get money. That's probably not the issue. The issue is, do you have the right set of experts around the table who are truly values aligned and who are going to be with you on that 10-year journey? Now, that answer is a harder one to find out, but it's the one that makes the difference in the trajectory of your business and sort of how, you know, what levels you can get to with having the right set of experiences around the table. That's why we look for for the right founders, the right fit, the right values, as well as particularly that global growth and potentially, you know, U.S. connectivity in particular. And presumably your contacts in the US, as you say, on both the West and the East Coast are really valuable for Australian founders who have global aspirations. Sure. I think that is true. It really is a, is a sanity check too, as you go along. I think that I am in a very, very unique position of being somebody who has lived and worked and citizens of both countries. So I can actually see the good and the more challenging aspects of each culturally, economically, et cetera. I think when I first came off the boat to Australia, I, I did have fairly a fairly insular Americanized view of the world. And I'm proud to say that that is not the case anymore, that I've learned that there's wonderful things about the Australian economy, healthcare system, et cetera, that I wish were more a part of the US culture. And so I can see the, the best and maybe some of the challenges of both markets. And what that affords me is essentially the ability to be a translator between the two markets. 
And I can give you a tangible example. So with Tritium, a couple of years ago, when we all sat around the table and started to think about what are the appropriate options for the company, that is an experience that I could really lean into in an incredibly unique way. And I was able to be instrumental in bringing one of my former colleagues from, um, from finance in New York to the table to help lead us to go public on the NASDAQ, which became a very unique set of circumstances and a unique opportunity for Australian tech company. And that wouldn't have happened without my involvement and, and likely my relationship. Any other companies you've invested in that you really love that you're happy to share what it is about them that you, you find inspiring? Yes, absolutely. So I can give you a couple of other examples. Uh, one that springs to mind is a company called Indebted, and it's a, a digital debt recovery platform that largely services the BNPL sector, but also... So that's buy now, pay later? Yes, exactly. I tend to invest in enterprise software companies or enterprise hardware companies. So technology companies that, that sell to other businesses. And I tend to in, invest in some te- fintech companies as well, given my background. So Indebted in, is an example of that. And one of the things that I really love about Indebted is not just the company, but really going back to these original principles, number one, the founder. So Josh Foreman is somebody who ha- is a repeat entrepreneur, which is always nice and getting more usual in Australia to see, which is great, which means they've, you know, sort of, he's had his stripes, (laughs) um, his hard knocks from his previous experiences. And he really leaned in to this market and, and applied new eyes and a greater discipline than we had seen from any other company. He's digitized debt recovery in a way that he has some of the highest NPS scores, period. And so he's really had a client-centric, customer-centric approach from day one, which had historically not been associated with with debt recovery from anyone, really. And also, I find that Josh has very high integrity and is very values-based, and he treats his people extremely well. He treats his team extremely well, and that's been, I've known that for years now, but that's been publicly reflected by Indebted being chosen as, I believe, the most preferred place to work among any technology company in Australia. So, you know, that, that's been a multi-year journey starting with an idea and frankly, trying to find customers in the, in the first year of investment to, to then identifying the, the disruption that was occurring in financial services led by BNPL um, and really complementing the growth of that industry. And now today, Josh, a few years later, he is truly a global company. Most of his revenue comes from outside of Australia. So it highlights that Point that I mentioned before and what we look at. And um, he has some of the largest BNPL customers in the world as his customers, Afterpay, Zip, and so forth. One of the things that sets great entrepreneurs apart is their ability to experience setbacks and failures and be resilient and to have the capacity to bounce back. For you personally, have there been times in your life where you've had setbacks that have been challenging in the moment, but then in hindsight, you've felt that you've grown or benefited from the experience? Yes. As you were asking that question, I was thinking, well, that's everybody, isn't it? I'm a parent of two small children, and I think about that a lot, that resiliency is is key. It was funny, I was listening to a, a podcast just earlier with an investor mentor that I have, and, and essentially the point was, when things are good, we all think it's due to our skills. And when things are bad, it's always somebody else's fault. We're unlucky. But the reality, those are just life cycles, and and that's part of life. I think for me, 
the times when I've found challenges, it's usually because something has come up against my core value system and I've needed to make a choice whether I stand up for what I believe in or I don't. And those moments define me as a person much more than anything else. And those times are hard because you always, everyone cares about what other people think and say, but at some level you live with yourself. So you need to make sure that you're pleased with the choices you make and you leave a legacy that you're proud of. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was being singular, you know, that the fact that, as you say, you've got unique skills and you've got a unique capacity to translate between different continents, but also it's unfortunately still relatively unusual to have women venture investors. And so then when there's controversy or or something notable, it feels like you're much more visible. How's that experience been for you being either emblematic of something that people want to pin their hopes on or where you feel like you are potentially subject to more criticism than maybe a male peer is because there's so many more of them? I think those things are all true. I think that we all need people, male and female, who we see, we look up to, and we see our uh, examples of our values. And that's sort of, you can't be what you can't see example. And that does mean you need to have, uh, if you're the first of something, if you're a precedent in some way, you do have to have thicker skin. And it might help, frankly, that I'm American <laughs> um, and that I'm not from here because maybe I could ignore some some of the white noise. But it doesn't mean that it's it's not something that doesn't affect me. I think it's it's fairly public that I filed a lawsuit against reinventure to enforce my contractual rights to carry to equity as being a general partner in the fund. And I was very comfortable with my legal rights, and it turns out those were supported and upheld, and we have settled that suit over a year ago. So I think that kind of experience is something that you have to really ask yourself, you know, what's important, what do you stand for, and and what do you stand up for, and what isn't worth it? And in that circumstance, obviously, I've made my choice. And I would certainly want anyone who, whether women or otherwise, to believe and understand that they can be very accomplished in this profession and that you might get speed bumps of people who don't share the same values, but you keep going. And that's certainly what I've done. And when, when I look at others in the industry that I certainly have admiration for, you know, Robin Denholm is certainly one that I think we're very lucky to have come internationally back to now Australia and, and lean in with some of her experiences. I'm sure if you spoke to her, she wouldn't just describe a rosy pathway straight to the top. And certainly there's many men I admire too in, in the business community in Australia and otherwise, and, and the same would be said. You've mentioned a couple of times the importance of mentors and you know having people who you admire, other than, than Robin Denholm, who I also have enormous admiration for. Anyone else that you would cite that's been really instrumental for you? Sure. I feel a little reticent to to mention people if I haven't gotten their clearance. So I hope I'm not offending anyone, but here I'll blame the American side of me now then. So sure. I mean, um, Daniel Petrie is somebody who is both not afraid of, of controversy and stating strong opinions, which I admire, but has also been somebody who has been very supportive and helped facilitate and mentor people in the tech community, whether founders or investors for a long period of time. There's others, like in the private equity community, Rob Koskar is somebody who 
I have a lot of admiration for and has built his own business and been a strong advocate, both of gender diversity as well as climate change, investing. Those are just a couple that come to mind. You also mentioned that um, you like to listen to podcasts. Are there you know, podcasts or books or, or things that you really find valuable that you would recommend to listeners? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things. So there's, there's topical podcasts that depend on the particular environment that we're in. That example would really be market-facing podcasts right now because 2022, we are in a time of tremendous uncertainty and adjustment into a new macro environment. And so anyone who doesn't understand what inflation is, for example, which is pretty much all of us, <laughs> should be focusing on, on macro podcasts. So, you know, I, I certainly listen to Bloomberg and CNBC and a lot of market-facing um, information, particularly U.S. and global information. In terms of your average, regardless what cycle you're in, Invest Like the Best is a podcast that I really enjoy because they're able to go pretty deep with global experts in various topic areas. And I can always learn from those people. You said you've got two young kids, you've got a firm that you run, you've got some other interests, you um, are director of SBE, which is a wonderful organisation. Any productivity hacks, any advice for how you manage to fit in a lot, given that you have the same number of hours in the day as the rest of us? Well, having a close-knit team where you have skill sets that you complement each other, I'm very lucky to have a team of people who I feel we are we yin and yang extremely well, and we communicate very well. So nobody, there's no one person that can do anything uh, of note without a team. And my husband, he has been my most important personal and professional partner of my entire career and life experience. There's no one I admire more uh, than my husband. And I think that's sort of at the crux of any um, strong professional or personal trajectory. And I know there's been the likes of Sheryl Sandberg and others who have highlighted how critical that is to anyone's success. And so I certainly benefit from that directly. Well, it's interesting. It sort of blends in, doesn't it? Advice you would have for entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising capital? I think, first of all, you should start with the idea. So before you think about money, first think about the idea and how interesting and relevant the idea is and why you are uniquely and you and your team are uniquely placed to iterate on that idea over time. And that's part of why I do what I do. I love what I do. So when it's tough, I keep going and I iterate. And I try to learn from people who disagree with me as well as agree with me. And so I think that's the core. If you surround yourself with the best people, you have a great idea that you're iterating properly, that, that can be globally relevant. Well, then the money will come. So I think we all get very tense around raising capital and how do we gamify this and who should we talk to? What's the signaling? And I think we really overthink it because, as I said, it's a long journey. So it only starts when you take money, when, you, um, when, when someone or an organization invests in you. There's a, there's a great quote by a guy named Chris Bailey, who's a C, uh, co-founder of Cover Genius. And I, I was on a panel with him a while ago, but this really stuck with me. And I think Cover Genius, by the way, is a great company. And I think both those founders are great. And he said, it's harder to get rid of or to separate from your venture capital investor than it is your co-founder. 
And so particularly in Australia, I think because there hasn't been a long enough cycle here, we're still actually fairly nascent when it comes to tech investing. I think people forget the relationship with your core investors of how important and critical that is. So if you don't understand the strengths that are coming with your money that are being invested, I think you're doing yourself a big disservice. So when you raise, make sure you have the right idea and the right team, but also make sure you really do holistic due diligence on the source of capital that you're bringing in. Well, that's why one of the reasons I'm so delighted that you've been so generous with your time today to sort of give potential fundraising companies the opportunity to get a sense of you as a human being. But the last question is, when you look into the future, what are the things that you're really excited and optimistic about? Well, I I actually continue to be very optimistic about the tech ecosystem in Australia. I think it's going to go from strength to strength. I think that the next 12 to 18 months are going to be a bumpy ride, are already a bit of a bumpy ride, but that's called a cycle. And many of this, you know, generation of entrepreneurs just haven't seen it yet. And, you know, dealing with that uh, the dynamic nature of, of the markets at this time is a, is a good skill set to be able to iterate. But despite the sort of near-term volatility, I think, you know, the core principles of tech being a great area to invest privately in Australia continue. There's a couple of themes that I'm particularly interested in. I mean, I became involved in Tritium years ago when ESG was not the buzzword that it is today. And so for me, it's very sort of second nature. There's a lot of adjacent opportunities around that value chain that I'm pretty excited about. We invested in a company called MGA Thermal, which is a cheap, scalable energy storage platform that is much more efficient than lithium ion batteries and much cheaper and could actually materially change the way that both not just Australia, but globally, we, we store and transfer energy. So that's an example. I'm also pretty optimistic about more diverse opinions and views and people coming into as founders into the ecosystem. I think there's been a a fairly largely homogeneous type of founder that's been funded, um, particularly out of Australia for the last decade. But I see that changing and I'm optimistic that investors in this community will, will start to see that increasingly recognize that. Because ultimately, a a lot of value and globally relevant ideas can come from people who just have a different perspective. Well, I think we're really lucky to have your perspective that comes informed with all of your life experience, especially from the opportunity to, you know, have lived beyond Australia's shores. So it's wonderful to spend some time with you. And thanks so much for your generosity. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate it. This has been an honour. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. 
Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.